Corinthians, please, uh, chapter 7. Uh, we're turning to the verse 17. And this evening we're taking up this title of a call uh, for Christian contentment. A call uh, for Christian contentment. And we'll see Paul's train of thought here in this great chapter that we're going through. Very practical chapter that we're going through when he's mostly been dealing with this topic of marriage. Uh, but he digresses a little bit this evening. I will see why. And um, in these verses from the topic of marriage, they're connected but not connected. Uh, and we'll see that a little later on. Chapter 7 and the verse 17. And we'll read through uh, to the verse 24. And this is the word of the Lord. And it reads, But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches. In other words, he's saying here uh, that this command that he gives isn't just to the Corinthian church, but it's to all churches. Therefore, brothers and sisters, it includes you and I this evening. It says there, and so ordain I in all churches. Verse 18, is any man called uh, being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision let him not be circumcised circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called art thou called being a servant care not for it but if thou mayest be made free use it rather for he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man. Likewise also, he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts this evening. Now we return uh, for our third study in chapter 7 of this first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. This is our 17th study in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're doing well. We're nearing the halfway point of the entire letter and there's plenty more practical lessons to learn as we go through this letter. And just at this point, I would like to thank each of you uh, for your faithful attendance on Wednesday evenings. If you weren't here well, it would be difficult for me to prepare messages and for Brian to prepare messages. But you're a hungry church and you're hungry for God's word and for prayer. And I appreciate that. And may God bless you for your healthy hunger for the word of God. And may that continue. Of course, last week as we began, or a couple of weeks ago, as we began our studies in chapter 7, we considered how this chapter teaches the monogamy of Christian marriage, the principle in the Bible that there's to be one man for one woman and one woman for one man. And we also considered the harmony of Christian marriage, the physical obligation to each other, but also in a healthy marriage, there must be spiritual harmony as well. There needs to be a time when you read a time when you pray together with your spouse when God has given his place in the marriage relationship. And then last week we looked at different scenarios that a Christian uh, may find themselves in, difficult scenarios where Paul gave instruction and he first gave instruction to the widows and those who were single 
And of course, his advice was very clear. If you're single, use this time as a gift from God that God has given you the time that maybe you would have devoted to a spouse in this season of singleness. You can use that time to serve God. And then, of course, there was advice to the married. And it was quite simply this. Uh, stay married. In the book of Malachi, we're told God hates divorce. Uh, but while it isn't mentioned in this passage, we did mention last week that there's only one exception clause for divorce that the Savior gave. And it was found in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. The Lord Jesus, addressing the subject of divorce and remarriage, said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. So the only grounds that Christ gives for divorce and remarriage is for fornication. Then finally last week we dealt with those who were married to unbelievers. This is a scenario where two believers got unbelievers got married, then one of them gets saved and the other is not saved. And Paul's advice was to stay in the marriage because of the sanctifying effect it will have on the family. In verse 14, Paul gave the reasons why they should stay as the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. And of course, that chief reason for the, the saved person staying in the marriage, staying with the family because of the godly influence that they can have in that home. And of course, there's that verse in verse 16 where it says, For what knowest thou, O wife? Wherefore, or whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife by staying there and witnessing? How do you know but that your spouse might come to Christ by your witness? In the home. So here we are, and we're now looking at this next section of chapter 7 that we've read together this evening. And we, we know that the whole context of this letter to the, Corinthians, the Corinthian church is built on a church that was extremely unstable. It's a, it's a, it's a background of instability. And the truth is, many in the Corinthian church were probably very keen to live for God. I don't want you to misunderstand this. The, the church were probably very keen to live for God, but they were easily knocked off their course. And many of us surely can relate to that. Uh, there were issues in every area of life in this church. There were issues with leadership and unity. There were issues with family life. And Paul had to write about that. And there were issues regarding sexuality and marriage. And that's what we've covered so far. And trust me, there's many more topics to go in First Corinthians. And really in these verses this evening that we've read together, there's very clearly a call for stability. Here was a church in instability, but there's a call for stability, or we could say a call for Christian contentment, to be content. Paul shifts from addressing issues related to marriage to discussing social issues for those who are called, and he uses this word called quite a few times, and simply what he's talking about, those who are called or those who are saved, those who are believers, those who are trusting Christ as Savior, this word called. And the called were asking him what they should do uh, when they were believers in regard to circumcision uh, and uncircumcision and slavery and being servants. As some historians estimate that up to 50% of the Roman population was composed of servants and slaves. 
And now that they were believers in Christ, what should they do? So Paul begins to by giving them a general command and he says, stay as you are. Don't change your external circumstances. Be content in the circumstances that you're found in. What Paul teaches here for people who are unhappy in their situation is that the real and necessary change is something that is internal. A change of attitude rather than external, a change of atmosphere. Paul, when writing to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 6 said this, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And certainly in our society, to be someone who is content is a rare commodity. There's a story told by a well-known preacher uh, who in his spare time enjoyed playing a round or two of golf. There was one day at the golf club where he played, he was sitting down for lunch before a round of golf with a group of wealthy businessmen. And these wealthy businessmen all worked for the same company and their job was to advise very wealthy customers where to spend their money and how to be content with their money. And they were talking about different customers and they were communicating over their meals, speaking about this topic of customers, very rich customers, being content. And the preacher added to the conversation and he leant in and he said, well, you know, man, godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, there was a silence fell around the table. And after a period of silence, one of the men said, Where's that saying from? And the preacher explained that the saying was from the Bible. When an older man was writing to a younger man in the faith. The preacher went on and he asked a very important question. These men who were dealing with trying to make people content with money. The preacher said to them, how many fully content people do you know? And the answer came back emphatically, none, none. In a world where the lie is told that riches and fame will make you content, here were businessmen who dealt with those kind of people who financially speaking, the way this world would look upon it, financially speaking, they were secure. It was a secure a security to them and, and what financially speaking would represent freedom of movement wherever they wanted to go around the world. They could click their fingers and they were there. And when these men were presented with this question, they even admitted themselves that they themselves weren't content with their lives. Now, can I say that this doesn't give you and I a right to point the finger and say, well, look at them not being content with their riches. We're believers and we're completely content. Because the truth of the matter is here, Paul is writing to God's people. And he's addressing the issue of Christian contentment as it's an extremely important issue. And very sadly at times, Christians do not stand out in our culture, although they should, as being representatives of contentment. I mean, just sit with some church members for five minutes in some places and they'll begin grumbling about their church leadership and maybe all other things that are wrong with the church. And then if you ask them about their lives and all that's going on there, they'll talk about all the external things that could change to make their lives better. And that's the big problem, isn't it? 
People always seem to look out and they want their external circumstances to change. If this was different, it would make it easier for me to live for the Lord. If this situation was different or if this problem wasn't in my life, it would make it easier for me to live for the Lord. Really, this was the situation in the church in Corinth. They were always looking out at their external situation. They were saying the grass is always greener. The grass is always greener. They were looking out that way. This was their problem. They felt if they could change their own, their own situation, their own circumstances, it would enable them to become more spiritual, more close to Christ. But they went a little bit further, and some of them were actually trying to make these drastic changes to their external circumstances in order to bring these things to pass to make them more spiritual. But Paul says no to this, and I want you just to note three things from these verses that we've read this evening. The first is this, there's a principle that's stated there's a principle that's stated, it's found in verse 17, it says this, But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all the churches. Here's the principle that Paul states, he says, Believers should be content exactly where they are in their circumstances. As God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. Where the Lord calls you in your own situation, so let him walk. What's he saying? He's saying, another way of putting it is this, as the Lord has assigned you your lot. And whatever situation and external conditions God has called you to, so let you walk in that. Paul says, so let him walk. Paul says, don't try to change your external circumstances. If you're circumcised, in other words, if you're a converted Jew, stay that way. If you're uncircumcised, a converted Gentile, don't let these false teachers, the Judaizers, come in and say, if you want to be a Christian, you need circumcised. That's not the point. That's not what's coming through. The main theme that Paul is teaching here is stay as you are. Stay in your circumstances. Paul had just finished explaining to believers who were married to unbelievers that they should stay in their situation peacefully, if at all possible, and live for Christ in their marriage. And this passage exp expands his thought on that topic, explaining that just because people become Christians, this does not call for wholesale changes in every part of their outward lives. Christ makes the changes within and calls people in from all walks of life. And while some changes are made in behavior and some changes are made in attitude because we're new creatures in Christ, the believer ought not to make some kinds of changes. For example, they ought not to change marriage partners. That was an issue in Corinth. They needed not to change their jobs. That was an issue in Corinth, of course, unless the job was dishonoring to God. That's a different matter. Instead, accept Whatever situation the Lord has put you in, says Paul, and continue on as you were when you first were called, because God can use his faithful followers in all areas of life. This was not Paul's advice just to this church, as I've said. It was his, his rule for all the churches. Paul is saying in these verses, you can look at your family situation and you can say, if only I hadn't married him, if I only had married someone else, I, I would be able to live for Christ better. Or if my children walk better with the Lord uh, the way they ought to, then I would be able to give my all for God. If only my external circumstances were different. Paul says, no, no. This is the place where God has called you to. 
You live for Christ. And you know, the second thing we need to note is this, that obedience is the key. Obedience is the key. Look from verse 17 again and, and see what we see here. It says, But as God hath distributed to every man as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so I ordain, or so, and so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any man called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. This is the key verse. Obedience is the key. Verse 19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Listening but the keeping of the commandments of God. Obedience is the key. The keeping of the commandments of God. There's a very old children's chorus that used to be sung when I was younger. I don't hear it as much anymore. And it says this. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe, doing exactly as the Lord commands and doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately and joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. David Guzik uh, makes an excellent point in this passage in these verses. Paul's point isn't really about circumcision here. This is an example that Paul's given. Even as, being even as being circumcised or uncircumcised is irrelevant when it comes to serving God, so is your current moral state. He could just as, as easily have said in his analogy, married is nothing and unmarried is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That's the point that Paul is making here. He's saying it's the keeping of the commandments is the most important thing in your life. Why did Paul write about circumcision? Well, he was saying... Well, what he was saying was a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. There were people trying to reverse it. There were people trying to get surgical, uh, doing surgical things to reverse their circumcision. And that was happening in the Corinthian church. But Paul was saying that's nonsense. It's nothing to do with your external. It's to do with your internal. God sees your heart. For the Jews, circumcision was a sign of their covenant with God. For the Greeks, however, they looked upon, down upon this mark and looked at the Jews as lowly people. Some Jews, in an attempt then, were, were, were getting this, trying to reverse their circumcision to, to add to the confusion. As I've mentioned already, there were Judaizers who were a group of false teachers who were claiming that the Gentiles, those who weren't Jews, needed to be circumcised to become Christians. And Paul's going, no, no, no. Here's the point that Paul's making. Your ethnic background does not change anything. It means nothing to God whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And I'm not talking prophetically here because the Jews one day will be restored. But I'm talking about in light of the salvation of grace and the age of grace. What matters in this day of grace is that whether you're saved or whether you're lost. And Paul is teaching here, it doesn't matter to God if someone gets saved. Uh, saved. It doesn't mean that they cease to be a Jew or a Gentile. I heard a story of a man who had an argument with another man who, who said, once said, he said that if a Jew is converted, he ceases to be a Jew. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. Uh, that's exactly what Paul is saying isn't happening here. What doesn't happen is you, you're, you're still ethnically who you are. If a Jewish man who is a racially a Jew, who is an Israelite, gets saved, he's still an Israelite. He's still from Israel. He's still a Jew. 
But what Paul is saying is it's irrelevant spiritually what nationality you are, uh, what, you're so, what you are socially, what you do in society doesn't matter to God. And we'll see that in a moment. And that's why you don't need to change it. You, just, it. you don't need to affect your external circumstances. It's your internal. Changing doesn't make a difference. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. It doesn't matter because your ethnicity doesn't matter. It's if you're saved it was the point. Jewish Christians didn't need to reverse. Gentile Christians didn't need to be circumcised. Instead, they all should stay exactly how they were. Why was Paul teaching this? Because it's the inner change that matters. I can't emphasize this point enough. They should focus on keeping the commandments of God, desiring to conform their heart, their heart and will in obedience to God. Keeping God's commandments was the mark of spirituality, not whether they were circumcised or not. And of course, he was telling them, telling them not to keep the Mosaic law, for they were now under grace, not law. As the Lord Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14, 23, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come on to him and make our abode with him. Isn't that lovely? If we are obeying him and keep the commandments, my father will love him and we will come on to him and make our abode with him. If you keep my commandments, John 15, verse 10, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15, verse 14, ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Do you see it? The change within. It's about the heart. It's about a changed heart with the help of the indwelling spirit to live and obey. It's the theme of the Bible. The problem comes from within. It's the sinful human heart. And until our government, and until those who sit in storm and realize that, there will be trouble. And there always will be. Until they realize that it's the sinful heart and the sinful soul that ruins our country. Until they realize that's the problem, our country will not stand. God, through the gospel, transforms the human heart. And changes the internal. And then internal will affect how people live outwardly. Oh, for a heart to praise my God. A heart from sin set free. A heart that's sprinkled with the blood so freely shed for me. A heart resigned, submissive, weak. My great Redeemer's throne. Where only Christ is heard to speak. Where Jesus reigns alone. Can I ask, do you seek to live for God and obey him in the circumstances where he has called you? Or are you busy trying to change that? Busy trying to change all that's going on outside instead of accepting where God has planted you and saying, Lord, I accept where you have placed me. I accept where you've planted me. And I will live for you in those circumstances no matter how difficult they are. Because if you really mean it when you sing it, just one glimpse of him and glory will the toils of life repay. I wonder do we mean it when we sing it. They were trying to change their outward appearance, the signs of Judaism. But Paul made it clear it's the heart that matters. But finally, I want you to see this this evening in this passage. 
And I will explain this. Christianity is not a social revolution. Look at verse 20. It says there, let every man abide in the same calling wherein he is called. In other words, Paul is just restating what he said in verse 17. Stay where you are. Stay in the same calling. Verse 21. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. Don't worry about it, he says. If you're a servant, you keep serving as a servant. But if thou mayest be free from being a slave, use that rather. If God calls you and your master in this life sets you free, that's okay, says Paul. That's, that's, you're, you're free to go. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. You're to live out your Christian calling in, in Christ, in the situation that you are vocationally, where God has called you to be in Christ, you're to stay in that situation. He's speaking about job now, not ethnicity, but your job where God has placed you in your circumstances. And he says, in, and Paul says, in your, in your social circumstances, don't let it trouble you. If you're called in the Lord, being a servant to a master in the city of Corinth, don't worry about it, care not for it, he says in verse 21. Don't, don't, don't give two hoots about it. Just you keep serving the Lord in that situation. It means don't you be anxious. Uh, don't let it be troubling you. Don't let it get you down. You serve the Lord. For your master now when you're serving your master. And you're doing the tasks that he asks you to, to do. You don't do it as unto him. You do it as unto the Lord. And he will see the change in you. And you might even get a chance to witness to him. Stay as you are says Paul. And whether he lets you free or whether he keeps you, don't you let it trouble you. In other words, if you're a slave and you're kept a slave, don't you worry. Just you be content. Be content in the situation where God has placed you. Can I ask you, dear Christian, tonight, do you just mope constantly about your lot that you've been given? Worry about it. Be concerned about it. Complain about it. Or is there a real true change in your heart where you just accept and seek to live for Christ in that situation? The Corinthians were trying to change everything, even their position in a society as well. And they were changing their position in society and trying to influence and change society outwardly. Now, can I say this? To try and change society, it's called social reform. And equally today, some people, even churches, try to go out there and change the society around us. They make the equation in their minds, well, if I could only infiltrate into society, even as a Christian, and change society, I could go out and I could relieve poverty. I could give such, such money out to the poor and I, I could help the sick and I could go to that land where there's a famine and I could bring aid to them. Uh, then I could contribute a little bit more and make, it will make me more spiritual and, and it would make the world a better place. And listen, I am not saying that all those things are wrong. Let me make that clear this evening. But the thing is this. What we need to realize is this. The person who thinks like this and only thinks like this will cause fatal damage to their own spiritual life and their growth and maturity because it misses the fundamental point of why the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. And there are many churches make this mistake around the UK. 
The Lord Jesus did not come to this earth to instigate an external social revolution in the world. The Lord Jesus came into the world in order to and into the world in order to instigate spiritual revelation in the hearts and lives of individuals. He didn't come into the world to bring aid for physical needs. He came to change. He didn't come to change the world by doing good. He came to change the world and change internal hearts, the internal hearts of sinful men. Now don't misunderstand me. We must seek to go and do good as God's people. That is a command and it's right to do. But our sole concern as a church fellowship here is the souls of men and the souls of women. And I hope that no one is foolish enough to think that you can go out there tonight yourself and turn the world upside down to such an extent that, that, we, can, that we can change the world fundamentally and, and, physio, and in the, physical, the psychological way and a philosophical way and that we can change the world system because we can't. Even when the Lord Jesus Christ was face to face with Pilate in John chapter 18. Do you know what he confessed to Pilate that wasn't his goal in coming to earth? This is what he said. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I didn't come to change this world. Although there is coming a day when his kingdom will come upon the earth in fulfillment of prophetic scriptures, the Lord Jesus in his first advent had come to set up a kingdom in men's hearts and not to change or instigate the external things of this world, but to live and change and penetrate the hearts of men, women, boys and girls and to save them from their sin in this sinful world. What we cannot fail to miss is that the primary purpose of the gospel is internal. It starts in the hearts of men. That's why we're holding a big gospel mission and um, um, big gospel weekend and we're calling for people to come in and hear the gospel and how Christ can change their heart. That's why we're doing that. Because we believe it's Christ they need to hear about. And how Christ is the one who can change them. Yes, some of them may need physical help. But first of all, they need spiritual help. And they need spiritual revelation in their hearts. And a change from within that will affect without. People don't need social revolution. If you're saved here tonight, these verses tell me that you're Christ's slave. You're his servant. And you're to be involved in his kingdom work, which is reaching out and sharing the gospel with others. To be a missionary in your workplace where God has planted you, no matter how difficult it is. No matter how frustrated you are when you go in each day, there are people there who don't know Christ. And they need to hear that they're sinners and they need to see a Christian who is content and where they are. Why? Because that's where Christ has placed them. You need to be the missionary in your family. Oh, it's difficult, Peter. It's so difficult because there's unsaved members in my family and they're so difficult at times. And it's so hard, Peter. You keep being that gospel light to them. You keep praying for them. You keep living in front of them and showing them that Christ is the person who brings fulfillment and contentment in this life. You keep living out the gospel in front of them. You keep sharing about Christ. Be the missionary in the society around us. Go out into the byways, knock the doors and tell people they need saved. You know, a few weeks ago, I didn't get to go, but at Ballybean, there was that meeting where a number of local or pastors from around Northern Ireland and 
An evangelist sat and they were interviewed and I was told that uh, Pastor Paul Ferguson was asked the question about how he had brought so many into Lauren, how he had seen so many saved, and he pointed to the Lord. But you know what he said that he did? There's 20,000 homes in Lauren. And since beginning in Lauren, Paul has knocked every single one of those doors. And he said, you need to be bold for Christ. Do you know a question he asked every single person when he knocked the door? He introduced himself as Paul from Lauren Mission Hall. And the very next words out of his mouth were this. Are you saved? Now that's bold. But you know, when I heard that, I thought there's a man who loves the souls of Lauren. There's a man who doesn't have the blood of the souls of Blarn in his hands because he's gone and met each one and he said, are you saved? And he's told them you need to get saved. And you know, through that man, praise God, he's led eight souls to Christ in recent times. And God bless him for his efforts because he loves the souls of Lauren. I wonder, do we love the souls of Grange? I wonder, do we love the souls of Roundabout, of Grogan, those in the Rogery Road? Those along the main line there. Those across in the White Sides Road. Those across the way. I wonder do we love the souls enough to go and tell them of the Saviour who saved us. You see, they don't need social revolution. They don't need us to knock their doors and try and change their area and tell them how to live better. Because they still have a sinful heart and they'll go back to live in the same way. They need to hear about Christ who will change them from within. Who will change their lives completely. That's why we make an effort so often here to present the gospel to sinners. Because that's what people need to hear. And they need to see a people, a church who are content in Christ. And here Paul says, you be content in your circumstances and you go be that witness and that testimony for Christ. There's a wee story I read earlier, and I thought it was great. I had to add it in. There was once upon a time, there was a stonecutter who lived alone. And though he had acquired great skills, he was very poor. He lived in a tiny bamboo hut and wore tattered clothing. And one day as a stonecutter, he worked with his hammer and chisel upon a huge stone and he heard a, a crowd gathering along the streets and by their shouts he could tell that the king was coming to visit his humble village and joining in the procession the, the stonecutter gazed in awe at the king dressed in marvellous silk and he was greeted by all his subjects. Oh, I wish I had the power and glory of the king, he thought. He has soldiers at his command and there's no one more powerful than the king. His cry was heard from heaven and immediately the humble stonecutter was transformed into a powerful king. He found himself riding on a great horse, waving at the crowds of people who had flocked to see him. This is power, he thought. And as the summer progressed, however, the new king watched the effects of the heat upon his people. Men and animals were becoming weary with the summer sun. The plants withered under the powerful rays of the sun. And he looked at the sky and the new king realized that the sun was more powerful than the earthly rulers. Oh, I wish I was as powerful 
as that, he thought. I wish I were the son. Immediately his wish was granted and the stonecutter relished his new role as the son. Well, he gloried in the power he felt as he surveyed the kingdoms below and he sent his bright rays to the earth and he watched the kings and princes hide under uh, under uh, in shelter and he watched his powerful warriors became weak under his gaze. Even the crops in the field were under his command. Then one day a tiny cloud moved over the land shielding the earth from the sun's bright rays and seeing that there was something more powerful he thought i want to be much like a cloud i'd like to be like that cloud again as wish was granted and he blocked the sun himself and he felt so important and he gathered all his strength becoming a, gig a big gigantic cloud and he began to pour rain upon the earth and there were rivers that were formed uh, previously there were there were no rivers he formed rivers and water flooded the streets of the cities and the farmland and everything trees animals people seemed to be awed by his power only the massive rocks were unswayed again he had discovered something more powerful than he there's nothing, he thought, quite as powerful as a rock. How I wish I was a huge stone. His wish was granted. And as a stone there, he sat in the countryside, motionless and powerful, unmoved by the sun, the wind, or the rain. And he felt exempt from all the forces that shaped the existence of those around him. Then one day a man, a poor wee man in ragged clothes, approached him. Carrying a wee bag, he pulled out his chisel and his hammer. He began to chip away at the rock. Realising that the man with the tools was more powerful than any rock, he cried out, oh, I wish I was a stone cutter. Once again, the heavens heard his cry, and he became a stone cutter. Once again, he lived in the bamboo hut, made his living with hammer and chisel, but this time he was content. Brothers and sisters, these verses are a call for Christian contentment. In Hebrews it says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For whatever they are, he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. The one who never leaves thee will go to work with you tomorrow. And the one who never leaves thee will be in that family situation that is so difficult. And the one who never leaves thee will go with you if you were to decide to go and knock those doors like Paul. The Lord is with you at all times. How great a promise is it? Wherever he has called you to be, wherever he has planted you, he goes there with you. Oh, that we would be content in the circumstances he's placed us. He has a purpose for you. And he is with you at all times. Let's pray together. Our Father, when we consider these verses this evening, how it reminds us of that wee chorus, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. And Father, we thank you, each one of us. We, we come before you with great gratitude 
that there is a wonderful Savior who left heaven and died for us and came to this earth not to bring social reform, not to set up his kingdom on earth at that stage, but at his first advent he came to change the hearts of men. We thank you, Father, for the transforming power of the gospel. We thank you, Father, for saved souls. We thank you, Father, for the spirit of God, God that dwells within. We thank you, Father, that indeed we can bear that fruit, not because of our own selves, but because God dwells within us. And Father, for that change that you have wrought in our lives, we will forever be grateful. Where would we be if it wasn't for your grace? Where would we be if it wasn't for your love? And yet here we are this evening, a people changed and bought by the blood of Christ. Father, you've been so good to us. And Father, at times we do realise we grumble and complain about the lot that we have in this life. We do struggle at times with our own situation. And Father, we confess to you that this evening that we're in great need of your help. And Father, we thank you that the toils of this life one day will be over and will stand in glory. But while here, O oh God, we need your help. Father, help us to be a witness to our family. Help us to show them that Christ is enough. Help us to be a witness in work. Help them to see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Help us to show the community round about us here that Christ is enough. That Christ can transform a life. May they see a church fellowship here that is content. That is in great love with the Lord. And Father, may they see that the Lord loves them. He gave his life for them. To that end, Father, as the gospel literature goes out and as the invites go out for our mission, we pray, Father, that you would draw many in. Help us, O oh God, to be bold as we invite. Help us, Father, to ask for, for people about their, their soul and the condition of their soul. Help us to be bold for Christ. Father, bless us now as we go to this time of prayer. May it be a sweet time as we meet around your throne, as we give thanks unto thee. And Father, as we make our requests known to you. Bless us, O God, we pray. We ask this in the Saviour's name. Amen.